psychiatrist and Holocaust survivor Viktor Frankl once wrote, Life is never made unbearable by circumstances, but only by lack of meaning and purpose. Frankl alludes to the fact that we truly do have a choice in our human experience. So let me ask you this important question. Do you stop the flow of good feeling in your life? Unconsciously stop the flow? Walk with me for a minute. Now I've done all of these and I'm curious if you have too. How many times have you created an argument with someone or gotten sick or injured or created some financial challenge in your life? Many times I'm guessing. Or maybe you're well aware of exactly what you do but feel completely in the dark as to why. Here's the thing. We tend to get ourselves into trouble when we're not living our purpose or what's referred to as our zone of genius. Sort of like a kid playing with matches because he's bored. We all have a genius. Have you uncovered yours yet? As Arthur Schopenhauer said, talent hits a target no one else can hit. Genius hits a target no one else can see. Makes perfect sense to me and I'd be happy to break it down. Don't let the word genius intimidate you either. Have you ever been doing something that flows easily and effortlessly? Dig for a moment and think about something you do that requires hardly any effort. You can practically do it with your eyes closed. Maybe you can whip up a meal that people salivate over without batting an eye or repair something in the garage before dinner is served, or speak from stage and feel as if it's very natural and get a standing ovation every time. It's like you can do it all day long and it's simple and easy and happens almost like magic. You've found your flow, my friend. That is your zone of genius. Can you feel it? It's worth marinating in if you can't just yet. And Gay Hendricks expands on this brilliantly in one of my all-time favorite books, The Big Leap. Now let's talk about fulfillment for a minute. True fulfillment, meaning. What does your zone of genius have anything to do with fulfillment, you might ask? Well, it all comes down to purpose. It's a simple formula for happiness, really. Having a sense of purpose and meaning while being tapped into your zone of genius can provide a much happier and healthier life. A study was conducted by UCLA researchers and scientists from the University of North Carolina, and they examined two types of people eudaimonic and hedonic. Eudaimonic types derive a sense of well-being from having meaningful purpose and focus on helping others. Hedonic types get their kicks from self-indulgence and pleasure-seeking acts. Spending money on luxurious things, indulging in the finer things because they feel good, buying fancy clothes or cars, these define a hedonic sense of happiness. The people with a strong focus on hedonic ways of being showed high inflammatory gene expression and low expression of antibody genes. In layman's terms, their reaction to adversity would be similar to people under stress and anxiety. This type of reaction can promote inflammation, cause neurodegenerative disease, amongst others, and impair resistance to infections. In a stark contrast, people who lean more towards eudaimonic well-being had the exact opposite traits. They were happy and genetically they were healthy. Here's the interesting thing. Both types reflected high levels of positive emotion and their emotional states were similarly positive. The difference, however, lies in the genes ultimately. Here's what the study tells us. Doing good and feeling good have very different effects on the human genome. They do generate similar levels of positive emotion, however. Apparently our conscious mind is much less sensitive to achieving happiness than the human genome. Of course, most humans flop between these two ways of being regularly. But the more conscious we become in our choices, 
the more we get to experience the positive effects of living with deep meaning and purpose. So the catch is this, fear gets in the way and stops us from allowing our full expression and keeps us in what Gay calls our zone of competence or zone of excellence. Both of these are safe and predictable, mostly. One of my all-time favorite quotes from John A. Shedd, the year 1928. A ship in harbor is safe, but that's not what ships are built for. Are you playing safe? Staying in your current situation that you're less than happy in? Maybe it's a relationship or a job or even with a client that sucks your energy dry. Totally void of meaning, just going through the motions. Fear keeps you stuck. The ugly thing it can be. The dragon staring you in the face, breathing fire on you, testing your courage, your strength, your commitment. Will you wimp out and go back to your addictions, back to your distractions? Maybe it's TV or Facebook or porn or alcohol or drugs. What's your vice? Are you being hedonistic instead of eudaimonic? We all have these automatic responses, doing them with the hopes of a hit of dopamine, serotonin or oxytocin or other chemicals. Another challenge is that we as humans seem to have a thermostat that will only allow so many good feelings or thoughts to happen before we screw it all up. Been there? I certainly have over and over again. Self-sabotaging myself and positive experiences in my life. Guessing you can relate. I remember when I had recently broken up with my fiance in the early 2000s. As I started off on my newly single life and after some deep introspection and healing, I felt on top of the world. I was making great money, totally debt-free, owned a beautiful BMW convertible, several homes, a couple motorcycles, and was traveling the world. I had the world all to myself. This was success, and I owned it. Or so I thought. But within a few years, things looked very different. There are two points I want to make in sharing this. The first, I was living in full hedonism and did not have much purpose or meaning. It was all about me. And the second, when things go well in my life for too long of a time, I tend to screw it all up. And boy, I certainly manifested some challenging times. First, a very painful disc bulge in my lower back, debilitating me for years. And second, my father's passing, and that was incredibly difficult. And third, the economic collapse, personally and the world around. Those were some tough times. Now I get it, you're probably saying some things happen that are out of our control they still do affect us on all levels, yes? Now, some might call your upper limit or thermostat a glass ceiling. Remember Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory when they blast out of the glass roof? Charlie realizing that him facing his dragon gives him everything he's ever wanted while Wonka guides him back to himself. Just press a button and sing. You're off. And up until now, I've pressed them all. Except one. This one. Go ahead, Charlie. Me? There it goes. Hold on tight. I'm not exactly sure what's going to happen. Faster, faster. If we don't pick up enough speed, we'll never get through. Get through what? Aha. Uh -huh. You mean we're going up and out? But this roof is made of glass. It'll shatter into a thousand pieces. We'll be cut to ribbons. Probably. Hold on, everybody. Here it comes. Gene Wilder, rest in peace, you amazing soul. 
You are clearly living in your zone of genius, and we all thank you for that. In The Big Leap, Gay asks us these powerful questions that pertain to your upper limit. Am I willing to increase the amount of time every day that I feel good inside? Am I willing to increase the amount of time that my whole life goes well? Am I willing to feel good and have my life go well all of the time? Am I willing to take the big leap to my ultimate level of success in love, money, and creative contribution? Bruce Cryer, CEO of the HeartMath Institute, mentioned on last week's podcast that getting to a state of coherence is the key to managing and using our fear in a positive way. It also applies to being in a state that allows us to not self-sabotage and expand our stretches of good feelings. Bruce grounds this for us here. When that happens, suddenly instead of this chaos in our whole system affecting how our brain is perceiving, how we're making decisions, how we're reacting, communicating, etc., instead we're using the, the fullness of our intelligence, the fullness of our being. So to be able to let fear uh, lead us to a more positive state is the goal instead of becoming collapsed or completely over, overcome by the fear. Welcome to the Face Your Dragon podcast, where we help you, a messenger with a mission, leverage your fear to amplify your voice in the world. On the show, we open up the concept that what you are most afraid of and most resisting are the very things that will set you free. With courage, with clarity, with contribution, you can have it all. This show will engage in deep, enriching conversation with thought leaders, best-selling authors, celebrities, athletes, icons, and regular Joes who have faced their fear and are now using it to create impact in the world. I'm Brad Axelrad, and I'll be your host. Self-love is everything. We upper limit ourselves due to our lack of self-love. Without it, we stop the flow of good feelings. As we explored the heart and its many levels in episode one, Don Miguel Ruiz spoke about the effects of fear on the heart, where he fittingly referred to fear as a disease of the human mind. Merriam-Webster defines disease as a change in a living body that prevents it from functioning normally. Doesn't it make perfect sense to think that fear has the ability to prevent normal function? Because fear guards the heart, it prevents it from functioning at its maximum potential. Imagine the greatness that could come into your life as a result of dissolving that fear. Gay Hendricks paints a clear picture about discovering your true purpose and potential underneath that fear and explains that what you're afraid of doing is the ticket to creative resources stored within yourself. Dr. Hendricks earned his PhD from Stanford and has served for over 30 years as a major contributor to the fields of relationship, transformation, and body-mind therapies. Aside from appearing on more than 500 radio and television shows, including Oprah, CNN, CNBC, and 48 Hours, he's written many bestsellers, including Conscious Loving and The Big Leap. Gay was the executive producer of the feature film Conversations with God, one of my all-time favorites, and has coached more than 800 executives and co-founded the Spiritual Cinema Circle, which distributes inspirational movies in more than 70 countries. With all of this going on, he still has time to write mystery novels. Like, who does that? Pretty darn impressive, eh? Listen in now as my friend Gay Hendricks shares his zone of genius with us. Gay, it's so great to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for joining us. You know, one of the things that I love about The Big Leap is how you start the book off saying, you know, the question, am I willing to increase the amount of time every day that I feel good inside? Can you go ahead and speak to that and what that really means to you there? 
Well, that was the first thing that I caught on to, Brad, was that I would spend a certain amount of time feeling good, like if I was with my then girlfriend or with I, you know, in my work or something, I would be feeling good. And then I noticed I would do something to mess that up. I would either eat something that didn't feel good and that would then make me feel bad, or I'd have a conversation that left me feeling a little off. But there was always something I did to kind of stop the flow of good feeling. So I started noticing that and I just began to think, okay, what if I could simply extend the periods of time that I went without messing up the flow? And so I began to keep track of a list of things that I did that stopped the flow of good feeling in me. And they boiled down to some really simple things. One I noticed was at the time I had some really atrocious eating habits. You know, now I'm you know, a healthy size for my height. I'm six feet tall, so I weigh 180 pounds and look more like an athlete. But in those days, I looked more like a big round mound. I was 40 or 50 pounds heavier, and I had not really taken responsibility for my health yet. And so I ate just an atrocious diet. And it wasn't until I began to study the whole upper limits thing that I really caught on to how I was using food and things like that as a way of stopping the flow of good feeling. I was upper limiting myself with what I ate. But that was just a tiny part of it because what I really noticed was that, and I noticed this with me and other people too, they could only tolerate a certain amount of time of things going well before they would create an argument in their relationship or have some kind of drama at work. But it was an issue for me of lengthening the amount of time. That's where I began to catch on to it. And I soon began to realize, Brad, that this was not just a personal issue. This was a problem that extended throughout society, that we had this gigantic upper limit problem on ourselves. Like, for example, entire countries would go through periods of peace and prosperity, and then somebody would just have to start a war. And then the whole ramifications of that. And then there'd be another period of peace and prosperity, and then somebody would mess it up with a war. And if you look back through history, you see that these little times of peace and prosperity almost always are followed by some kind of negative event. And so I began to think, maybe this is something that's kind of species-wide, maybe as a whole species, we're so conditioned to things not going well that when we start to feel better, when things start to go well, we don't have the programming for that. We don't have the wiring yet in ourselves for allowing things to go well for long periods of time. So yes, that's one of the first commitments I made was a commitment to simply extend the period of time that I felt good and felt that flow of good feeling. It's amazing, Gay. So basically what you're saying, an upper limit, if you could just give some context on really what that is, it sounds like a glass ceiling or just the, you know, where we self-sabotage, right? Yes. Well, imagine early in childhood, oftentimes a thermostat gets set, you know, just like the thermostat in your home. But this thermostat is on how much good feeling you'll allow yourself to feel or how much good relationship flow do you know that you can feel. And I know I grew up in a family where there was quite a bit of conflict going on. And so I think it was very natural that later on in relationships, I would create conflict around me as an upper limit problem. So the upper limit is a thermostat setting that gets set unconsciously early on. And later on in life, when you exceed that thermostat setting of how good you can feel, 
you'll trigger some old unconscious programming that then imposes an upper limit and you'll get sick or have some kind of drama in your relationship or have an accident. There's a lot of different ways we upper limit ourselves, but usually we can count on in the body anyway that the first early warning signs is a sense of offness where you begin to feel off inside for some reason. And sometimes it's about something you ate. Sometimes it's about something you said in a conversation. But if you look carefully, you'll always begin to notice that those periods of good feeling come to an end with some specific thing that you do. Got it. So I'm so curious how you stumbled into this. You know, the Facer Dragon Tribe and the Dragon Tribe here were focused on helping people face the main dragons that keep them from taking action and sharing their message with the world. So just a couple of those will be found out as an imposter or fraud, for example. So as people move into some of these upper limits, you know, how did you notice that you were doing that first off? Like, what was it in yourself that created that awareness? The first time I really noticed it big time was when my daughter was little. She was about six years old at the time. And uh, I was at the time a single parent. And so I was always running around from place to place, organizing things for her. Plus, I had a full-time job at the time, too, and was working on my doctorate at Stanford. But I had this moment one day, she was going away or had gone away to a sleepover camp that was only a few miles outside of town. But it was her first time to be sleeping over in this camp situation that she'd been in that summer. And so I woke up the next morning after she'd been gone overnight and I started worrying about her. I started thinking, oh gosh, Amanda's, she's probably going to be feeling really lonely and she's away from home for the first time. And I bet she's real homesick. <laughs> so I began to project all of these terrible feelings onto her. And so I actually called up the uh, place where she was camping and talked to the director. And I said, I was worried about my daughter and I was worried that she might be feeling lonely and homesick and everything. And could you let me know how everything is going with her? And the woman was very nice to me. She kind of chuckled and said, you know, you're the third or fourth parent that's called today with something similar. <laughs> and I said, oh, really? And uh, she said, yes, it's something that happens for you, but it usually doesn't have anything to do with your daughter. And in fact, I can see her out the window, she said, and she's out in the field playing soccer with a bunch of girls and she looks like she's having a great time. And so there I was suddenly realizing now, why would I manufacture this? And I realized, oh my goodness, I started having those thoughts right after I had a period of really feeling good that morning about what I was doing in my work and how things were going. And I had this kind of golden couple of hours where I'd, things had been really in the groove. And then all of a sudden, this flood of worry thoughts came in. And I checked out the reality, and there was no reality for the worry. She was having fun playing soccer. So I had manufactured something to bring myself down. And that was a big moment for me of kind of gulp realizing that I did that in all sorts of different ways. Wow. And boy, it, it really took on from there. And then I began to notice it in all other areas of my life too. And I began to talk about it with my clients. And that's when it really began to catch on. At the time I was working in Palo Alto, California, where Stanford is, 
And there was a lot of people in the early days of the tech industry, very stressed out executives. And I ended up working a lot with business people. And that's really how I got into doing big leap consulting in the business realm. I started working with companies that had had some big upper limit problem. In other words, they'd gotten successful up to a point and then something had happened that blew it out of the water and set them back. And so even businesses have their upper limit issues. So it's been such an exciting time. I studied this for many, many years before I ever wrote the book, The Big Leap. It probably, when that came out a few years ago, it summarized 30 years of work and observations on the upper limit problem. And the other thing that's in The Big Leap that we'll probably get around to talking about too is the whole zone of genius. It occurred to me right away that there were these little pockets of things I did that didn't even feel like work, and yet they often made me feel better and even made more money than things that felt like work. And right. so I tend to increase the amount of time I spent every day in my zone of genius. So the direct payoff for moving through those upper limits, Brad, is that you get to spend more and more time in your own personal zone of genius. Beautiful, Gay. Let me pause you there. So let's talk about, first, before we pivot into the zone of genius, because I love going there and how we stay in our zone of competence or our zone of excellence. That's a great conversation. I want to hear how you experienced fear, which could show up as an upper limit in your when you first started your public work. How did that show up for you in the work side of things? Well, one thing that happened for me was that I got the great gift of a terrible review for one of my books. And uh, (laughs) so I don't know if you've ever had that pleasure, Brad, but uh, I wouldn't wish it on anybody, but I, I, I grew from it. And here's what happened. Throughout the 1970s, I wrote a lot of books in education, and I wrote several textbooks in counseling and clinical psychology. And so I was more on the professional academic side of writing things. And then in 1980, I had a big enlightenment experience where I was able to, for the first time that I know of, to really love and accept myself as I was. And that still today is such an important part of life because, you know, many of the things in life come from a inability to really love and honor ourselves as we are. So we end up putting up all these false fronts and personas and acts and things like that, that are really only there because we haven't really loved and honored and accepted ourselves for who we really are. And so I was still in the early periods of learning that, but I sat down and I wrote a little book called Learning to Love Yourself. And it was from the first person and I talked about my own struggles and it was the first time I'd stepped out from behind the academic screen. You know, you have to kind of maintain a distance when you do academic writing and you can't put any of your own feelings in it or anything like that. So I just poured my heart and soul into this little book, Learning to Love Yourself. And when it came out, It was a moderate, moderate, good-selling book, like 5,000 copies a month. And so I was pretty happy with it. However, it had never gotten a review. And self-help books in general usually don't get many reviews. But one day, I happened to run into Dan Goldman of Emotional Intelligence fame. And he had not written that book at the time. But I asked him if he knew anybody at the uh, magazine Psychology Today, where he worked at the time, that could review this book. And so I gave him a copy of it. He turned it over to another fellow 
who ended up writing this review, and it was just about the worst review that you can imagine. Oh, yeah, a friend of mine called me on a Sunday afternoon, and he said, hey, Gary, do you subscribe to Psychology Today? And I said, no, I used to a long time ago, but I don't find it that interesting anymore. And he said, okay, well, that's good. And I said, why? And he said, well, I want you not to read this issue of Psychology Today, whatever you do. <laughs> Wow. And I said, wait a minute. And he said, there's a review of one of your books in it, but it's probably one you'd be better off not reading. And of course, Brad, you know what I immediately had to do. I immediately had to run down to the newsstand and buy the magazine. And there I sat reading this review and it was like, Dr. Hendricks, a formerly respectable psychologist has now decided that he's supposed to share his feelings with the world. <laughs> All this kind of stuff. And so has he gone crazy, you know, and it was just full of stuff like that. That's and funny. So formally respected. That's kind of funny. <laughs> you know, the, <laughs> the Face Your Dragon podcast of the world, the Face Your Dragon platform is really based on Joseph Campbell's work. And I love this quote. It kind of dovetails into what you're saying there. But the cave you fear to enter holds the treasure you seek. And it's so funny to hear that you're saying that. And that was definitely a cave you feared to enter was reading that uh, review. And so what did you glean from that review? And how is it relevant to the big leap and the upper limit and playing in your zone of genius? Well, I think it was relevant in a couple of ways. First of all, this terrible review turned the book into a bestseller <laughs> because all the things that this guy hated about it were obviously things that somebody out there really wanted to read about, you know? And so it went from, you know, like 5,000 copies a, a month to 60,000 <laughs> copies or something like that. So many times on Hawaiian vacations afterwards, when we would be vacationing compliments of the royalties on learning to love yourself, I would lift a uh, glass of cold draft beer to the reviewer that gave me that. <laughs> I mentioned great. that too, because I mean, it's a funny story, but what it got for me on a much bigger level was I realized that there's nothing I can do to control things like that because things like that are by their very nature outside my control. And one of my very favorite quotations from one of humankind's first self-help book, which is called The Art of Living uh, by Epictetus, which was written about 2000 years ago, the first line of it says, the secret of happiness is knowing that some things are within your power to control and some things are not. And so I had been so concerned with what other people thought of me and things like that, that I think I had to manifest this horrible example of somebody really not liking me for who I really was to shake me off of that position that I was somehow afraid to be completely transparent to the world. It was an opportunity for me to take this huge leap out into the world of writing other books like Conscious Loving and then being on Oprah and talking about our issues and struggles and triumphs and being on 48 Hours with Scott Pelley in our living room talking to us about our issues and our struggles and our triumphs and things in our relationship. And so suddenly it blew the game up into this whole... <laughs> thing that I had never imagined would ever happen. Let me insert this here, Gay. One of the main dragons, the five main dragons that keep people from unleashing their message, at least from this paradigm, is that you'll become successful and get criticized or your personal life will suffer. Yes, that's a beautiful thing. See, I break it down into four fears that are behind all of our upper limits problem. And one of them you just touched on. One of them is if I go to my full success, 
the unconscious belief is somehow that will create more burden in my life in some way. It'll create more time away from home. It'll create lessened relationships. It'll create a burden in me. And so that's one of the fears that people struggle with. Another big one that you've probably also touched on too in your work, I think, is the whole fear of outshining other people, that a lot of us feel like we have to keep our light tucked in so that we don't make other people feel bad by really shining. And so that fear of outshining people really gets in the way. Down at the bottom of most of those, though, Brad, is a fear somehow that I'm fundamentally bad or fundamentally wrong, that when we have that fear that there's something fundamentally wrong with us, there is a whole bunch of things that unfold out of that. But the thing is, those opinions of ourselves are usually inserted by other people. Somebody else labels you as wrong or bad or inconvenient or whatever you your label were, was that got applied to you. That gets applied to you early in life by somebody else. And so it's a lot of times our personal growth, our psychological and spiritual growth has a lot to do with learning to love and accept those things down underneath ourselves that are feelings that we have because of the labels that have been applied to us. And so breaking out free from that and actually being in your zone of genius, being who you really are in the world is simultaneously the most exciting thing and can be also the most frightening. But remember, Fritz Perl said something very wise, founder of Gestalt Therapy. He said, fear is only excitement without the breath. So if you hold your breath, you get scared. If you... <sighs> take a few big breaths, you begin to realize it's all excitement. Uh, that's exactly right. And we, you know, we talk about that and the dragon brand is really about using all of the opportunity, all the chemicals that come from fear, right? I mean, I just love that quote by Joseph Campbell, the KB fear to enter holds a treasure you seek. Meaning if you have a fear of public speaking, which I did for years, and now I've produced a couple hundred live events with some of the biggest thought leaders on the planet. And I've spoken hundreds of times I'm finding I'm actually pretty good at it. But I had all these stories that, wow, what's all this fear that comes up? And man, this is scary, right? You know, how do you use the fear and leverage the fear that comes up? Well, the interesting thing is that if you allow yourself to acknowledge the fear, if you open your heart to it, in other words, instead of trying to shut it out or make it go away, if you simply be with it, what you find that it's an actual ticket to the creative resources that are stored in yourself. So down underneath all that fear, if you could kind of ah, take a breath and breathe down through it, you find there's this open space that's, I think, full of pure potential. So, for example, I write mystery novels. I don't know if you know this about no. me. I write mystery novels in my spare time. I've published uh, four mystery novels so far, and they all have to do with a Tibetan Buddhist private detective named Tenzing Norbu, whose nickname is Ten. And so I've invented a whole world that this character lives in, and he grew up in a monastery but also had an American mother that he lived with half-time because his father, who was the... Um, head of the monastery and the mother didn't get along very well. And so he kind of went back and forth between this kind of hedonistic Western time and being back in the severe monastery. And so a lot of times the programming that occurs to us occurs to us at a time when we're also feeling afraid. And the fear that you can open up to under all of your programming is a quick ticket 
down into the creative aspect of ourselves. So Joseph Campbell, that's such a brilliant quote. I'd never heard that before. I'm familiar with some of his work, but that says it all, really, the cave you fear to enter, because it's the fear that you don't want to breathe into. That's the thing that you don't want to accept about yourself or the thing that you don't want to accept about others. It's that fear, that taking that breath right into that fear that makes the magic happen. And I don't know which Indiana Jones movie was, but there was one where he had to step out into space in order to have the bridge appear underneath him, the foot. Right. What, what was? Right. Yeah, it's that kind of moment where you have to make the commitment first and then the means to make that commitment good appears for you. And I'll tell you, Brad, I have had that happen so many, many, many times where I didn't know how to do something, but I developed the intention and then suddenly, whoosh, the manifestation of it happens. I think a lot of that depends, though, on this ability to open up and let ourselves experience whatever it is that's down in that cave. Because it's absolutely safe because if it weren't, you would have already been destroyed by it because it's already in there. Now it's just a question of admitting it into your mind and body. So, Gay, there's two things I really want to explore with you next. And first is what we call chasing the dragon. So there's facing your dragon, but then there's chasing your dragon, which is ultimately, you know, it's an old term from the opium dens way back. And it's really about once you take that first hit of opium, you'll never get that high again. But that's that's the one side of it. The other side of it is that we distract ourselves from what you would call the, your zone of genius. You know, you chase other things that distract you and keep you busy and focused on other things instead of staying stepping into your zone of genius. Can you speak to how we avoid stepping into our zone of genius? Yes, that's a good example with addiction because addictions are a way of distracting yourself from what's trying to break through, which is your true genius, truly who you are. I'll never forget a conversation I had with a heroin addict that had kicked heroin. This was like way back 1970 or so in the early stages of my career. And um, he said that kicking the drug had been not that awful. It was three days of feeling like he had the flu. He said, he said, it's being off the drug, being clean. That was a real challenge. And I said, well, what do you mean? What's the challenge? And he said, what do I do with my time? <laughs> he said, you know, when I was a junkie, I spent all my time either committing crime to get the money and blah, 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 you know, going through the whole drill. And so he ate up like 18 hours a day <laughs> doing all of this stuff but it wasn't really getting him anywhere. So when he was able to get off the drug for a while, what he really found was all this incredible creative energy. And he happened to be a a visual artist, a painter, ultimately. And what he found was once he got that creativity on the line, that's what he wanted to spend all his time doing. And so interestingly enough, people with a lot of addictions are often the most creative people. They just haven't found a way to drink directly from the wellspring and feel comfortable letting that creative energy through all the time. And so addictions are a, are a pathway that eventually leads, if you can let go of the um, addiction, to a direct relationship with your creativity. Underneath everything you see, Brad, I think we're directly plugged into the creative source of the universe. But most of us go around not feeling that or not acknowledging that because we're busy 
playing mind games up in our head or we're busy doing relationship dramas or we're busy doing our addictions and recovering from our addictions. And so we, we don't get that direct experience of having that pure, sweet flow of creativity moving through us all the time. And I think that's where the big growth is in life, is being in touch with your direct creative flow so that you're spending most of your time doing the things that you most love to do. Oh, that's beautiful. When, okay, I've, I've just got to insert this. But the 100% responsibility, I think, is really important to talk about this right now. For example, you'd mentioned you know, upper limits will create dramas in health or finances or relationship. So I've certainly created some in my life. I mean, I think everybody has. And what I've been exploring in the recent years is either narcissism or sort of energy vampires, whatever you want to call that type of dynamic. And I'm really empathic and clairsentient, like a lot of the listeners are here. So I'm trying to figure out how to manage my own personal energy and, and still be open and loving and generous and take 100% responsibility, even if I'm victimized, for lack of better terms, or actually been taken advantage of by an energetic predator or a literal financial predator. I mean, whatever it is, how do we take responsibility when we should or when we shouldn't? That's a great question. And so let's apply this to that very pattern. So would you say, Brad, that that pattern has unfolded three or more times? Absolutely, yes. Okay, well, I use the rule of three. That's one of the things we made up here at the Hendricks Institute. We call it the rule of three because if something has repeated three times or more, you can be virtually sure that it is rooted to some old unconscious limiting belief that if you can go down and undo that limiting belief and replace it with something healthy or just get by without it, then you free up that amount of energy. So would you be willing to have a quick conversation that's designed to untie the knot on that limiting belief and have it dissolve into the air? I'd love that. Great. So in one clear sentence, what would you say the pattern is? Three or more times I have created situations where I fill in the blank. Yeah, where I feel as if I'm uh, having my kindness taken advantage of as weakness, and I end up feeling left uh, sort of depleted and empty. Okay, good. And could you name an example? You don't have to use proper names, but could you name an example of a time when that happened so listeners and I can have a real clear picture of what the thing was? Like, was it a with a girlfriend or a partner? Or? Yeah, most of the time it's been in uh, romantic relationships, but certainly a few times in business relationships. Absolutely. Okay, sometimes in romantic relationships and a few times in business relationships. So take a moment just to, first of all, love and appreciate yourself, even with that pattern. Take a breath that opens up and accepts it just like you accept the day of the week. Make it no big deal that I have this pattern and I attract people who rip me off, basically. And... Um, that's happened a bunch of times, so there's something in there that's running that movie. And just take a moment to love and accept yourself completely, even with that old program. <sighs> I'm taking a big breath just to kind of coach you into taking a breath that includes all of that. And then with that as a starting point, let's begin to open up to that a little bit more. When you tune into that whole complex of issues, what is it that feels like the hardest thing for you to face and accept about that? The fear that it'll happen again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
and that I won't be able to live my life this open, loving, and trusting of people that I'll have to somehow protect myself more in order to navigate. Mm -hmm. That makes me very sad. Yes. So take a breath into that sadness and welcome it into the space of us right now. And if you kind of drew a line back through time to the earliest time you can remember, what's the first time that pattern happened that you can think of? Yeah, it's definitely with my dad and older older brother. Uh-huh. What happened? I, you know, it's just a visceral thing more. It's an experience of feeling like I please love me. Like I'm, you know, inherently unlovable. Please see me and love me. So underneath that, that deeply unlovable feeling. It sounds like that underneath all of this is that feeling that you are unlovable. Yeah, not not good enough and ultimately unlovable. Yeah, it always comes back to unlovable. Yeah. Yeah. So right this moment, love yourself for feeling unlovable. Think of somebody you know for sure you love. Who's somebody you know for sure you love, Brad? My mom. Your mom. Beautiful. And what's her name? Beverly. So your mom, Beverly, so feel how you unequivocally love her. There's nothing that could make that go away, right? And so I'd like you to give yourself that same quality of love. Give yourself that same Beverly type love and love yourself for feeling unlovable. It's amazing to observe the sort of dissonance there, (laughs) you know, (laughs) visually, viscerally, like it's but I'm allowing them to collapse. So I'm really getting this gay. It's amazing. Well, good. Well, keep opening up and embracing yourself. See, life only requires us to love as much as we can from wherever we are. There's no order of perfection in love. So as much as you can love yourself from where you are right this moment, especially awakening that mom type love, that Beverly type love, with yourself. You see, if Beverly were sitting here on this conversation with us, she'd be the first person to say, yeah, Brad, I want you to love yourself the way I love you. Mm. So take a nice big breath of that. That's great. Yeah. It's fast too, Gay. It's a real fast process. Yes, it is. Thank you. You're very welcome, Brad. It's yeah, that was that was one of the questions I was going to ask of you was to ha- to share with the with the tribe here um, what action they can take. So so let's be specific. I mean, it, can we sum all of what you just did with me up for someone else to do with themselves? Yes, when you feel yourself in the grip of some sort of pattern, whatever the pattern is, but it's something that makes you unhappy, something you've done usually more than three times, something that's happened more than three times. So there's a pattern there. When you notice that happening, open up inside and see if you can contact the fear that's underneath that. Feel it in your body and embrace that fear with love, loving it as much as you can. If it's a fear that you're deeply unlovable, love yourself for having that fear. You don't have to make it go away. Where would it go? You just open up and you love it from wherever you are. And as you do that, you increase the space that's around something. And it doesn't feel so jammed up and locked up inside yourself because the act of giving love to someone or something is an act of giving them space. In other words, you give yourself room, a little more room in there. So love to me 
is the great healer. I mean, if you get down to everything that human beings are really about, you get that we're all here to expand in love and creativity and things get in the way of that. And then when things have gotten in the way of it, by golly, you just have to love your way through that and get back on the horse and ride again. Life is going to serve up one experience after the other that's going to challenge your ability to love. But in the big curriculum of life, that's what happens. And the response to that is always to love as much as you can from wherever you happen to be. These tools that are in the big leap are really the way the practical tools for how to do that. But to get down to the very basis of everything, it's finding those little nuggets of self-judgment inside and loving your way through them. So let's actually talk about next steps for folks. How do they find you? And I know you have an online program coming out for The Big Leap. And I've just got to share with you guys that when I read this book, it was hands down I mean, it, no book has ever sort of hit me between the eyes and said, here it is. You've been upper limiting, Brad, like oping, as, as you joke about in the book. I led a 21-week book study group on this thing because it was just such powerful material. And now you've sort of, you're creating an online program. Share what's going on with that briefly. Well, this is very exciting, Brad, because, you know, we've done dozens and dozens of live seminars uh, where we teach the big lead material and of course done consulting with dozens of companies and that kind of thing but what i had never done until this past year is i spent the past year translating all of the big leap materials into things that we can do in a virtual setting using teleconferences and sometimes video uh, but a lot of the work is done uh, with you know, a couple of thousand people getting on the phone together and making a community and working with things that way. And it's a very exciting form of learning. One of the most exciting things that's ever happened in my lifetime is the whole development of virtual learning. And so I love the idea that I can be here in my home office and somebody can be over in um, Saudi Arabia or South Africa or someplace like that sitting there in their pajamas, you know, whatever time of the day it is over there working on the material with me. And so I've developed these online tools that we can use, actual activities and processes that we teach now that we can teach online on the phone and on video. And it's amazing. They're just as powerful as when you do them in person here in my office. So that's been one of the most exciting things that's happened over the past year. And as a matter of fact, right now I'm busily at work on a sequel to The Big Leap that's all about uh, spending more time in your zone of genius. Love it. Yeah, that's getting me excited, man. <laughs> so they, where do they where do they find out more information? We'll have it posted, of, of course, here on the site, too. Two things I'd like to mention. One is I'm doing the course through the Shift Network. So you go to a link that I'm sure you'll provide uh, the Shift Network. These are great people that are helping organize these wonderful large uh, online classes. So the Shift Network is uh, my partner in that. Also, they can go to Hendrix.com. H-E-N-D-R-I-C-K-S dot com. And Hendrix.com is a jumping off place to lots of our different websites and enterprises. And by all means, get a copy of The Big Leap if you haven't uh, read it yet. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. I highly recommend that. I mean, I'm, I'm probably 20 times through that book, either listening to it or having read it. It's amazing, Gay. All right, we're going to wrap up there. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Face Your Dragon podcast. It's uh Always a pleasure to, to chat with you and to uh, experience your work. And I trust that the process that we went through is really going to help everybody else out there. So what's your final statement, Gay, that you could leave with everybody that's really going to create some impact for them? 
Yes, two things. One is look for the ways you're upper limiting yourself. Look for the ways you bring yourself back down after you've had some success. So start noticing those and extending the periods of time you spend feeling good and having the flow of connection and relationships. The second thing, put a priority on discovering your zone of genius. And that is those things that you most love to do and those things that when you do them don't even feel like working. Like for me right now, I'm not working. This is fun for me. <laughs> I've probably given 500 interviews on the big right. leap, and yet having one more opportunity to do it is what gets me out of bed in the morning. Love it. Yeah. So look for what you most love to do and start doing that a little bit more each day. Beautiful, Gay. Thank you so much. I'm really, really grateful to uh, be playing with you at this level again. So thanks for joining us. All right. Thanks a lot. I want to thank our guests for sharing their hearts and brilliance with us. Thank you, Gay Hendricks. Just so grateful for your contribution in my life. And Bruce Cryer, again, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. Excited to have you for a full podcast in the coming weeks here. We're so grateful for your contributions to the world, the impact that you've created. You can find out more about Gay and Katie Hendricks at Hendricks.com and Bruce Cryer at BruceCryer.com. And as we dive deeper into facing your dragon, I want to offer the opportunity for you to discover the number one hidden fear stopping you from earning what you're worth. Be sure to take the one minute quiz at couragequiz.com. And if there's something here I mentioned that you want to review again, keep in mind we keep all the notes for you, including links to everything we've talked about today. You can find the show notes for this episode at faceyourdragon.com forward slash episode 002. And finally, I would like to invite you to subscribe and leave a five-star review for the Face Your Dragon podcast by visiting faceyourdragon.com forward slash subscribe. Be sure to share this episode with your tribe on social media if it was useful for you. We'd love that. And join the conversation in the Face Your Dragon Facebook group as we talk more about your greatest fear being the very thing that will set you free. Tune in to episode three because I'll be talking with the one and only Chris Carlson, co-author of Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, one of the fastest selling books of all time with 30 million copies in print. We discuss how finding purpose in life's darkest moments is really the key to creating the life you love. And some upcoming guests like Greg Reed, film producer and best-selling author of the Think and Grow Rich follow-up book, Three Feet from Gold, that he co-wrote with Sharon Lecter, the co-author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad with Robert Kiyosaki, as we discuss his rise to the top and all the challenges and fears that come along with it. And the incredible Scott Duffy, who once sold a business to Richard Branson's Virgin Group. How cool is that? He's worked with Tony Robbins and several big media brands like CBS Sportsline, NBC Internet, and FoxSports.com. I'm excited to share this champion's brain as he breaks down how to launch your business into the stratosphere while leaning into your greatest fears. These incredible beings and many more on the Face Your Dragon podcast. See you on the next show. And remember, when you face your dragon and take the leap, you will break free.